0: the paradoxical relationship between less and more. What has this to do with this generous introduction? I must say, frankly, that the description that was given of me, all those titles, books, professorships, in my miserable existence, I found it difficult to recognize myself in that figure of me. I felt a gap between that complex symbolic identity, professor, and so on, and simply me. In psychoanalysis, we call this gap. Gap between your symbolic title and your miserable real existence, symbolic castration. So, thanks very much for a castrating experience. This is what you do to friends. Thank you. Uh, now, what has this to do with more and less. You know, here already, in this tension between symbolic title, identity, a father, a professor, and your immediate miserable self-experience, we have a tension between more and less. First fact is that you are never up to your title. You are Always, by definition, less. No father is a full father, no president is a full president, no wife is a full wife. But at the same time, this less is more, because it acts a so-called personal touch. Like, you know, as they say, and this is, I think, the main form of ideology today. As they say, you are not only what your title is, professor, president, you are much more. You are also a concrete, unique human being. Uh, so, again, less can be more. Uh, I w- so I would just like to begin with some improvisation of this, on this topic, supplementing wonderful remarks in the previous intervention. Uh, how does it function, this more for less? I think the fundamental idea is that If we abstain from adding any superficial uh, ornaments, if we do not fill in all the gaps, or if we even truncate what would have been the completed form of our product, this very loss will generate additional meaning and create a kind of depth. I think this kind of more for less is perhaps even one of the definitions of art, the safest way to ruin a work of art is to complete it, to fill in the gaps. Just recall how we relate to ancient Greek statues like Venus of Milo. We perceive them as white and truncated, you know, the hands missing and so on. So that if someone were to restitute them the way they were in their own ancient times, complete and, don't forget, colored. Ancient greens colored their statues. We would perceive this as unbearable kick. Incidentally, I read somewhere that an Arab billionaire did this in his villa in Beverly Hills. He painted an ancient statue, and the media made fun of his vulgarity. But he just restituted it the way it was. My point is that this is for me the base of this formula, more for less. How you can even, I will now make a mental experiment, create maybe a work of art or something almost like a work of art out of commercial kits, not by adding more, but by taking something away. You literally create more. An example that I like to use of this, it's an incredible example, I think. From my own youth, when I was still living in what was Yugoslavia, there in the 60s, 70s, we had censorship of films. Not too harsh a censorship, but a little bit, like direct anti-communist politics or too direct Christian propaganda was usually censored. So I remember when I saw, so, for the first time, that big Hollywood religious kid, Ben-Hur. Something incredible happened. Direct religious propaganda was prohibited. So you know the story. Ben-Hur conflict with the Roman consul of, in conflict. Then his wife and, uh, uh, sorry, his sister and mother are got plague, are uh, there in their camp. and he, in the famous race, he beats the evil Roman who tells him at the end, yeah, you may have won here, but your mother and sister are there, and so on. Then we see him desperate, alone on the stadium. Then the story goes on. Jesus Christ, he gives him water on the way of the cross, and at the end, the miracle, mother and sister are cured, come back to him. Now, what the censor did is that uh, immediately after the most famous scene of the film, The Great horse race, when Ben-Hur confronts his enemy who tells him, you think you won but at the same time you lost, your mother and sister are still alive, we see Ben-Hur walking alone desperate on the stadium, end of the film. It was just censorship, because what happens afterwards is directly Jesus Christ, this was prohibited. But then something miraculous happened. This reduction made out of kits, religious propaganda almost a work of art. Instead of simplistic stories celebrating religion, we get a kind of desperate existential drama where the moment of your triumph is the moment of your loss, and so on and so on. I think it's a wonderful example of this less is more. Of course, without intending it, but by his censorship, less, the stupid censor, added something more. And the opposite example, since we are here, in the city where Hemingway was often. You remember The Ultimate Kids, the famous Hollywood film Killers, which is based on a Hemingway short story of the same name. There, Hollywood did the opposite. You know, in Hemingway's story, which is just less than 10 pages, two killers come to a city to kill one of their gang who escaped from them, and it's a total mystery. It remains totally open in the short story Why was this guy who was tracked down to be killed so desperate that he even didn't want to escape the murderers? He simply accepted his death. Why? What Hollywood did is then added one hour and a half flashback femme fatale. It fills in the gap. I claim ruining the story. But this is the good aspect of it. In what sense? More for less. We get it in art. But surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, we find a similar logic of more for less also in the consumerist universe of commodities, where less is the proverbial one cent subtracted from the full rounded price. You know, for example, products always uh, cost 4.99, never five. That magic one cent is the less, and more, the no less proverbial surplus that we get for free, known, for example, to all of us who buy toothpaste. You know how usually the top quarter of the toothpaste tube is painted in a different color with large letters announcing you get one third more for free. Well, my idea is, can I get only that top third for free? The catch is, of course, that the full product, which sets the standard for this more or less is fictional. We never get to see a toothpaste without this surplus and with the price simply full five. A clear sign that the reality of this more for less is less for more, of course. So how does uh, this uh, commodity logic function? Let me evoke another product which incidentally reminds me of many postmodern famous works of architecture a very modest product so called Kinder surprise you know it empty chocolate egg shells wrapped up in colored paper and after you unwrap the egg and crack the chocolate shell open you find in it a small plastic toy or something to confront, I think this is a nice example of more. You obviously get less, the void in the middle, but that to fill in that less, you get more. the surplus, the surplus. that's I think how commodities work. You always get more for less, less, not full of chocolate, but more uh, uh, more the stupid toy. As a psychoanalyst. I can offer you an easy and I think convincing explanation of this reversal, that is to say, of how less can produce more. It is what Jacques Lacan called the surplus in the mechanism of surplus enjoyment. Take a typical obsessional masochist. You have a certain desire or indecent, illicit that makes you guilty, that you experience as illicit desire, pleasure, and you want to repress it to punish yourself for it. For example, when you have certain dirty thoughts, I don't know, you start to pinch yourself, or if you are more a fanatic, to whip yourself. But then you immediately see what happens. These measures of repression, of self-punishment, themselves become a source of new pleasure. You cannot escape it. All of a sudden, you start to enjoy the the very measures which were destined to thwart, to block your enjoyment. Or to put it in more theoretical terms, uh, the very renunciation to a pleasure turns into the pleasure of this renunciation. The regulation of pleasures turns into a pleasure of regulation. Everybody knows that in this sense, erotics and bureaucracy are intimately connected. This is always my advice, not that I'm good at this, to my friends who claim I'm too shy, and this renders me impotent when I have to perform in a sexual act. I tell them, just don't believe that Buddhist bullshit, you know, be spontaneous, just do it. I propose them the solution is the bureaucratic solution. Sit down with your partner and treat it as a complex bureaucratic task. Just write down. First you kiss me here, then you put the finger there, and then you have a debate. The lady said, no, I want your finger there, and so on. And all of a sudden you will get caught into this totally non-erotic bureaucratic procedure. It will become a source of additional sexualization. So again, uh, referring to uh, to to Mark, the previous speaker, I would say that the whole point of human sexuality is that all truly authentic human sexual pleasure that we get is this kind of excess pleasure. There is no zero, I would even extend this logic of ground and excess to sexuality. I mean, only animals maybe, even there I doubt, have direct sexuality. You see your partner, you just boom, maybe if needed, with a a stone hammer on the head, you just do it. Maybe animals can do like this. But with us, humans, sexual pleasure is always a pleasure in excess. There is no zero level sexual pleasure. Uh, Again, in this sense, it's a mechanism which even defines being human. This less is more. Every form of more, transcendence up to divinity, is grounded in a less. In order to have the experience of the divine, you have to experience, as every good Christian will tell you, the abjection, the finitude of your mortality. So only the experience of less opens up the space for more. Of course, relations get here very complex. Because precisely what was said by previous speakers, very nice example of how uh, uh, some architects don't want to erase traces of imperfection in a product. Like in concrete, there should be still traces of production, flaws. Failures should be visible. True, but even here, I think things get complex because the the problem is that if you imagine modern industrialized production, it is much easier to build a perfect surface building without flaws. So I think it's a nice paradox, probably every architect knows it, that it costs much more to make a building look imperfect. You have to pay much more to introduce signs of imperfection. It's, again, we are back into erotics. I remember years ago when they were both on the market of modeling, I remember a big opinion poll uh, which supermodel men prefer, Claudia Schiffer or uh, Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford won, and when they asked the people why, they a large majority of them gave the same answer. Because, you remember, Cynthia Crawford has this birthmark here, and the idea was, uh, Claudia Schiffer is too perfect. It caused anxiety. You need a sign of imperfection. So, again, what I will try to do today is to look for such signs of imperfection, to look for less in what, today, from what I know is the most exemplary form of more in architecture, the paragon of today 's architecture, big performance arts complexes they are very conflictual meanings they are try to unite amusement and high art, profane and sacred, exclusive and popular. These meanings cancel themselves so that the outcome is some kind of zero presence of meaning. How? What is the less? The imperfection, structural imperfection in these buildings. Let me begin by a brief remark on Rem Kohlhaas's Library of France, the enormous box that houses the library. Here, the expressive correspondence between the inside the division of a building into rooms and spaces for different activities, and the outside of a building uh, is, uh, is uh, destroyed. We have radical incommensurability, or to quote Frederick Jameson, the functions, the rooms, the interior, the inner spaces hang within their enormous container like so many floating organs. These formal shifts in the relation between and inside reincorporate the paradoxes of private property after the end of civil society by way of the classic antinomy of a public space that is privately owned." End of quote. However, one should not misunderstand this emphasis on the incommensurability between outside and inside as a critique. I don't ask, I don't demand the continuity between the two. I think that the incommensurability between outside and inside is a kind of a transcendental a priori of architecture. In our most elementary phenomenological experience, the reality we see through a window is always minimally spectral, not as fully real as the closed space where we are. This is why when driving a car or looking through a window of a house, one perceives the reality outside in a strangely derealized state, as if one is watching a performance on a screen. When one opens the window, the direct impact of the external reality always causes a minimal shock. We are overwhelmed by its proximity. At least this happens to me. You know, in a car, you open the window, and all of a sudden, you are shocked how close, how real is the outside. This is also why, when we enter the closed space of a house, we are often surprised. It seems that the inside volume is larger than the outside frame. As if the house is larger from the inside than from the outside. How does this effect work? Let me take an extreme example, which I visited with love. On the southern side of the demilitarized zone, which divides North Korea from South Korea, South Koreans built a unique visitor's site. A theater building with a large screen-like window in front, opening up onto the north. The spectacle people observe when they take seats and look through the gigantic screen window is reality itself. Uh, The demilitarized zone and beyond a glimpse of North Korea because from there you get a view of uh, one small town, that's why they build this theater there, uh, of North Korea. Then, as if to comply with this fiction, North Koreans built in front of this theater a pure fake, a model village with beautiful houses. In the evening, the lights in all the houses are turned on. At the same time, people are given good dresses, but they are obliged to take a... stroll every evening. So, a barren zone is given a phantasmatic status, elevated into a spectacle. So North Korea becomes sublime, viewed from the safe spot in South Korea. Uh, Now, you will say this is typical of totalitarian regimes. But I claim Bernard Sumi's new Acropolis Museum, built in Athens, in front of the mountain with Parthenon, relies on a similar effect. When one reaches the third floor, one can see through the glass partition of the window frame the thing itself, Parthenon. Seen through the frame, not directly, enhances its sublime appearance. There can also be uh, something even more paradoxical, a false insight, like in the house of the ZKM, the uh, Technological Art uh, Institute in Karlsruhe, There is a TV screen in front of the entrance to the main toilet area, showing continuously on its black and white screen the inside of a small toilet cube with the empty toilet bowl. After the first moment of release when I was running for the toilet, thanks God the toilet is free, I cannot wait, I become aware that it will will no longer be empty when I will enter it, so maybe I will be seen defecating. It took me some time, before the obvious truth did strike me. It was, of course, a pre-recorded tape that I saw, not the actual inside of the restroom. What this mutual encroaching of the inside and the outside indicates is that inside and outside never cover the entire space. There is always an excess, a third space which gets lost in the division between inside and outside. In human dwellings, there is an intermediate space which is disavowed we all know it exists but we do not really accept its existence it remains ignored and mostly unsayable the main content of this invisible space is excrement canalization but also the complex network of electricity digital links and so on all this is contained in the narrow spaces between walls or floors we of course know well rationally, how excrements leave the house, but our immediate phenomenological relation to it is a more radical one. It is as if heat disappears into some when we flush the toilet, into some netherworld, out of sight, and out of our world. This incidentally, I think, is why one of the most unpleasant experiences is to observe when the toilet gets blocked, the heat coming back from the hole. It is something like the return of the living dead. We rely on this space, but we ignore it. No wonder that in science fiction, horror films and techno-thrillers, this dark space between walls is the space where horrible threats lurk, from spying machine to monsters or contagious animals like cockroaches or rats. Recall also, in science fiction architecture, the mysterious topic of an additional floor, or a room which is not in the building's plan, and where, of course, terrifying things dwell. So again, this is my first purely abstract point, but which I think it's crucial to, uh, to take into account actual experience of architecture. Not only we have the gap between inside and outside, But this gap is, by definition, incommensurable. Of course, rationally, we know first that there was the original outside. Then we carved out isolated part as inside. But again, to refer again to Mark, outside only becomes outside viewed from the inside. So we never can have a position of meta language up there when we can see it all. When we think we draw a line, we don't see that third mysterious space. So, back to performance arts complexes. Uh, uh, This gap between inside and outside and the third space, they exemplify it perfectly, I claim, with their famous gap between skin, what some architects call skin and structure. What are the basic architectural versions of this gap? The zero level is presented in some of Kolhas buildings, like the above-mentioned project for the Library of France. The envelope is simply a neutral, enormous box, which in its interior houses multiple functional spaces, which hang within their enormous container like so many floating organs. Then, some of Libeskin's projects reflect the gap between the protective skin and the inner structure into the skin itself. The same external form, enormous box, is multiplied, relying on the contrast between the straight vertical horizontal lines and the diagonal lines of external walls. The result is a hybrid effect as if the same building is a condensation of two or more asymmetrical cubes. As if the same formal principle, a cube box, was applied along different axes. A weird tension and imbalance, a conflict of principles are thus directly inscribed into the forum. The next step is the minimal aestheticization of the external container. It is no longer just a neutral box, but a round shell protecting the jewel inside. Formally, the contrast between outside and inside is usually the contrast between the roundness of the skin and the straight lines of inner structures. A round envelope, an egg-like cupola, envelops the box-like vertical horizontal building or buildings inside, like the giant teacups of the Oriental Arts Center in Shanghai, or by the same architect Paul Andreu, the National Grand Theater of China in Beijing with its giant metal glass tower, an eggshell protecting the performance buildings. One can effectively claim that the National Grand Theater of China is a gigantic Kinder Surprise egg. The aesthetisation of the skin culminates in the so-called sculptural gary, buildings, where the outside shell enveloping the functional inside is no longer just a shell, but a meaningful sculpture of its own, like, for example, the performing arts center in Bard College, north of New York City, whose skin is a curved aluminum bug cockroach form. There is yet another variation on this gap between skin and content, the so-called terrain buildings, where the building's surface skin is constructed as a direct continuation of the surrounding terrain, with undulations of a hill covered by grass and so on. Something like, incidentally, The Hobbit's dwellings in The Lord of the Rings. The Yokohama International Port Terminal is exemplary of these terrain buildings. An open public space, whose roof functions as an open plaza, continuous with the surface of the nearby park. Rather than enveloping the building as an object or figure, figure, the project is produced as an extension of the urban ground. The Yokohama terminal can thus be seen as the extreme case where, in a way, the whole inside of the building is reduced to a kind of interstitial space between the skin envelope, the green or wooden surface, and the body of the earth, squeezed in the flattened domain between the two. Not surprisingly, the actual effect of such buildings is the very opposite of the intended naturalization, seamless immersion into natural environments. Nature itself is derealized, it appears as if natural surface of grass is an artificial skin concealing a complex machinery. The central mystery of performance arts venues is for me the mystery of this redoubling. Why a house within a house? Why does the container itself has to be contained? Does this sometimes freakish display of inconsistency and excess not cry out loudly? functioning as a symptom. What if this redoubling renders the contradiction of public space which is privately controlled, of a sacred space of art which should be open to profane amusement? Alejandro Zaera Polo's ongoing work on the concept of architectural envelope is focused on the border between outside and inside, instead instead of the internal organization of the inside. Polo, defines envelope as the membrane which separates the inside of a building from its outside. As such, envelope is the oldest and most primitive architectural element, which, again, materializes the division between exterior and interior, and is therefore automatically charged politically. Zaire Apollo grounds the notion of envelope in a very precise idea of late capitalist dynamics based on the work of Gilles Deleuze and Peter Sloterdijk. Schlatter, His starting point is what I'm tempted to call neo-capitalist deleuzianism. One should drop all, according to Zaira Polo, all anti-market ideological utopianism and fully endorse the fact that the global market is the primary milieu of contemporary architectural politics. One should operate within the system of global capitalism. How? The main feature of globalization is the unheard of unleashing of the powers of deterritorialization. The process described long ago by Marx in the famous passage of the Communist Manifesto, quote, all fixed, fixed fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away all new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned." This, however, does not mean that everything is gradually turning into a formless social slime. Deterritorialization itself creates the need for new modes of delimitation, which are no longer the old hierarchic fixed walls, but the multiplicity of envelopes, bubbles, containers of liquid reality. A quote from Zaira Polo. Globalization has propelled a set of spatial typologies primarily determined by the capacity to conduct flow. Architects have tried to engage with this borderless space, the space of flows, by dissolving the envelope as an obstacle to flow and spatial continuity and presenting an image of the world as a chaotically flowing magma. However, a new picture is emerging in the form of bubbles and uh, containers of liquid reality. Here enters Peter Sloterdijk with his monumental trilogy, Spheres. Far from advocating a return to pre-modern containment, Sloterdijk was the first to propose what one can call the provincialism for the global era. The world has a foamy space filled with bubbles and balloons of different scales and qualities. This capsular society and its phenomena such as global provincialism, the politics of climatization and the social uteri, describe a new paradigm that requires not just a reconsideration of the technologies and economics of the building envelope, but of its political, social and psychological Implications. So which are the political implications of this current appetite for the envelope as a device of insulation and immunization? Zaire Polo is well aware that the interior of a building is truly determined by the demands for efficiency, functionality and so on. His wager is that the envelope, in its independence from the functional inside, can function as a potential space of freedom, of aesthetic autonomy, purveying its own message. However, as Zaira Polo has to admit, apart from the relative aesthetic and political autonomy it provides, and the obvious environmental function, envelope also serves as a security device. Quote, the design of spherical envelopes has consequently focused recently on the construction of the surface itself both as an environmental and security device and as the locus of symbolic representation." The security task is here not the same as that of the traditional building walls protecting the inside from external dangers. The fateful difference is that the envelope secures a privatized public space a quote from Zaira Polo of course a more permeable definition of the property boundary is more likely to effectively accommodate a fluid relationship between private and public in an age when the public realm is increasingly built and managed by private agents end of quote so from the deleuzian poetry of fluid deterritorialization we are back to the task of how to enact and protect the private enclosure of public spaces. If traditional architecture was an attempt to enclose the inside from the outside, today it often tries to enclose the outside itself, to create a protected screened outside, separated from the wild outside. The envelope which isolates a set of buildings is thus the urban architectural version of a process long known in political economy as the enclosure of the commons, not only the interior of a house, its exterior itself is cordoned off and climatized, not only with regard to heat and air quality, but also with regard to the undesired presence of potentially toxic subjects. Because I don't have time to develop it, but I think to understand all this double-skin envelope, we should Link it to a very interesting phenomenon emerging recently in the United States. I looked on the net by putting code words and so on, in bibliography. You know that there are a couple of dozen books today in the United States about this new concept, which is ideology at its purest, on toxic subjects. The idea is that the other, as such, can be potentially toxic. And then What is ideological about this notion is that it encompasses phenomena from totally different levels. A toxic subject can be someone close to you who, like a vampire, exploits you. An evil father, mother, parent, and so on. It can be literally a toxic subject. Immigrants entering the country but having some viruses, dangerous diseases. It can be, of course, a terrorist, it can be a religious fundamentalist, whatever. The point is precisely, again, how these totally different spaces are covered by the same category, toxic subject. Uh, again, a quote from Zahir Polo here, Sloterdijk's Politics of Climatization points to a process in which growing sectors of urban urban space are given to private agents to develop and maintain, gardeners, event managers, and private security agents are part of the design of these atmospheres. Kohlhaas's junk space is another description of the same phenomenon of sanitization of ever larger areas of the city, providing a safe environment, assuming we are prepared to surrender police duties to private security services." End of quote. So, of course, the official progressive ideology and politics Likes to celebrate such projects as models for the revitalisation of the decaying city centres. However, Zaira Polo is right to ask the question: whether this is actually a regeneration of the urban centres, or whether it is the takeover of the inner cities by a sort of alien organisation with air conditioning and private security. End of quote. This brings us to the social antagonism these buildings try to resolve. On the one hand, to build a performing arts venue rates as a holy grail for architects. A quote from a book on performance centers, unlike the more conventional types of buildings, such as offices, housing, and even civic architecture, which have to conform to the streetscape, a performing art venue can afford to be bold and unusual, to stand out. However, this space for creative freedom is counteracted by the demand for the building's multifunctionality. Venue managers cannot simply rely on performances themselves to provide a sufficient attraction. The building must create an experience and a sense of place for its increasingly demanding audience. It is with such intangibles that events can really win against home entertainment. Uh, thought must be given to all aspects of a visit, from the foyer and bars to the facilities and ease of access." End of quote. This demand, however, is not only financial, but I claim profoundly ideological. It reflects a cultural tension. The last quote from this book on performance art (laughs) venues. The perception that public funds are being spent on elitist buildings has always been an Achilles heel for these projects, leaving them open to attacks from all quarters. And in today's more transparent and politically correct society, it is the issue of inclusion more than any other that has influenced the design of contemporary performing spaces. As a result, the performing arts venue has to be redefined for the 21st century. The new generation of buildings must be Part of the public realm with access to only the core areas being restricted by the requirement for a ticket. These venues include public activities within and around the complex, attracting a wider range of visitors. End of quote. This consistent effort to counteract the threat of elitism signals a series of oppositions with which performance arts buildings deal. Public private, open restraint, elite popular. All, incidentally, variations on the basic motive of class struggle, which we are told no longer exists in our societies. The space of these oppositions, I claim, delineates the problem to which performance arts venues are attempted solutions. Uh, Their attempt to overcome elitist exclusivity fails since it reproduces the paradoxes of the upper-class liberal openness. Its falsity is the falsity and limitation of our tolerant liberal capitalism. The message of the political unconscious of these buildings is democratic exclusivity. They create a multifunctional, egalitarian open space, but the very access to this space is invisibly filtered and privately controlled. In more political terms, Performance arts venues try to enact civic normality in a state of emergency. They construct an open space which is cocooned, protected, and filtered. This brings us to what is false about the anti-elitism of performance art venues. It is not that they are secretly elitist. It is their very anti-elitism, its implicit ideological equation of great art with elitism. Difficult as it may sometimes be for the broad public to get into Schoenberg, Webern, Paul Klee, whatever, Kandinsky, there is nothing elitist about great art. Great art is by definition universal emancipatory, potentially addressing all of us. When in elite places like the old metropolitan in New York, upper classes were meeting for an opera performance. Their social posturing was in blatant contradiction with the works shown on the stage. To see Mozart and the rich crowd as belonging to the same space is, I claim, an obscenity. There is a well-known story from the early years of the old Met in New York when a high society lady, one of the opera's great patrons, arrived half an hour into the first act. She demanded that the performance be interrupted for a couple of minutes and the light turned on so that she could inspect the dresses of other ladies with her binoculars. And of course, her demand was granted. If anything, Mozart belonged to the poor in the upper stalls who spent their last dollars to see the opera. Far from making the exclusive temple of high art more accessible It is the very surrounding of expensive cafeterias and so on, which is effectively exclusive and elitist. Recall what Walter Benjamin wrote about the Garnier Opera Palace in Paris. The true focus of the opera is not the performance hall, but the white oval staircase on which high society ladies display their fashion and gentlemen meet for a casual smoke. This social life was the true focus of opera. What visiting opera really was about. Or, in the terms of Lacan's theory, if the play on stage was the enjoyment which made the public come, the social game which went on on the staircase before the performance and during intermissions was the foreplay which provided the surplus enjoyment, which made it worth to come there. And of course, the whole game of pretense, again, the same game of less and more, was that one shouldn't admit this directly, you know. Although I would almost have admired it. This would have been, for me, a true elitist ethics. When you say, screw the opera, let's just meet on the stairs and have a nice talk. Uh, 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 This is, here again we are back in psychoanalysis to... Uh, to to render, to delineate the paradox here. Let me tell you a story that my English friend, Lacanian analyst, Darian Leder, told me. He once had a patient who told him of a strange slip of tongue that happened to him. He invited a lady to a restaurant, which was on the ground floor of a hotel, with obvious intent after dinner to take the lady to a room up. But he made a mistake. When he entered the restaurant, instead of saying, table for two, please, he said, a bed for two, please. Now, here comes the true Lacanian spirit. Danian leader told me, no, this doesn't mean, oh, his true desire emerged, his mind was already with, what will happen later. No, it was a much more refined libidinal economy. Uh, The guy liked to eat, so he was afraid that he will enjoy eating so much that he will be too tired or, or not able to do the second thing up there. So this slip of tongue was rather a reminder, as much as I will enjoy eating here, I should not, as a kind of ethical duty, I should not forget that my true task is later, upwards. I mean, something the same, I think, goes in the, in the, in the Paris Opera. Bringing this logic, again, to its absurd extreme, One can imagine a building which would consist only of a gigantic circular staircase with elevators taking us to the top so that what is usually just a means, a path to the true goal, would become the main purpose. One goes to such a building to take a slow walk down the stairs. If this appears to you as a nonsense, Remember that we have such a building the Guggenheim Museum in New York, where basically it's one big staircase you go up So that uh, you go later down I cannot do it for the same reason that I hate even if it's national sport in my country That I hate skiing you know the problem of skiing is for me you go up a mountain To come down well why not stay down and read a good book. I have some problems there okay, but So, again, uh, uh, just to recapitulate and finish now briefly, my point is that you can read such a phenomenon, the the point of pride of today's architectural big performance venues, you can nonetheless detect in them traces of social antagonisms, the basic falsity, tension of our society, tension between its false openness, pretending to create an open space accessible to all, and uh, the exclusions on which this openness is founded. Uh, This is why, this is again my explanation of this paradoxical, uh, to which I referred, redoubling, you know, you have sometimes even directly, like, what I heard they plan to do now with that great Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg. You will have a building, and the whole building will be cocooned, isolated by another cupola. Again, the mystery is why this redoubling. Or to give you very briefly another example before passing to my conclusion. Uh, 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 In Israel, in East Jerusalem, I read, they are now they plan to build a big multicultural religious center, kind of a large domain with many historical documents dedicated to all not only to Jewish religion, but to Islam, Christianity, a kind of a religious tourist theme park. And they proclaim it, you see, in this, uh, in this part of the world where there is usually just madness, war, terrorism. You will have here a place to reflect where all religions coexist an open space where all of us can meet. Yeah, but the problem is that in order to build it They had to displace. I don't know how many Palestinians from and so on and so on I like this paradox of a lot of blood had to uh, Had to be spilled so that you can create the open space. So to conclude The basic message. It's very modest one. I'm not sure that I know a lot. No, I'm sure that I don't know a lot of architecture. Is nonetheless what interests me in architecture. It's how architecture is, for me, the exemplary case of how of how ideology is at work precisely where you don't think you will find it. Even in... in, 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 in Buildings or not only buildings in the larger sense houses, but even house appliances and so on where you think We have just pure functional objects that even the most ordinary Everyday objects can be objects not only to use them, but to think with them. So to approach the conclusion a couple of points critical points to create enemies. First, I want to repeat, I'm sorry some of you already know it, but it's my big royal example to make this point. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. It always interested me, the paradox of, I already mentioned them, obviously I have some anal fixation here, I don't want to go into it, toilets. Did you notice if you traveled around the world, how different they are. I simplify to the utmost, but this doesn't invalidate the analysis, I think. If you go, I don't know how it's here, I just will mention three big civilizations, nations. In France, the hole of the toilet bowl is in the back, so that when you produce excrement, they quickly disappear in the hole. The German toilets, the old type, now they are disappearing, but you still find them, it's the opposite. The hole is in front, so that when you produce excrements, they are they're displayed in the bag, they don't disappear in water. This is the German ritual, you know, you should every morning, sniff, inspect your sheets for traces of illness, it's high hermeneutic. I think the original meaning of hermeneutic <laughs> for Germany is maybe this. Then, uh, in Anglo-Saxon world, United States, you get, you know, the toilet bowl which is full of water so that uh, sheet floats in it before it disappears. And then I asked many of my friends, architects, interior designers, why these differences? they, They gave me two books on the structure of toilets. Nowhere did I get an explanation. And then a wild speculation came to my mind. Do you know that from the late 18th century, Uh, we have in Europe the idea of European trinity. It's a racist idea, you are not in it, Uh, Italy is not in it, but the idea is that the three crucial European nations are France, Germany, England. Each of them standing for a certain level of social life and for a certain politics. France is politics, is the privileged domain, and politically left revolution. England middle of the road, liberal, moderate, and economy, Germany, metaphysics and poetry, and conservative. And, my God, it did strike me, isn't this the key? In France, revolutionary approach. Hole hole for the sheet in the back, it should quickly be liquidated, like a kind of a guillotine. Uh, Anglo-Saxon, pragmatic, let it float, let's be rational. German, (laughs) metaphysics and poetry. You observe it, you think, and so on. Okay, this may be madness, but you see what's my point? It's that something like this had to be at work to account even for such a common thing like the structure of toilets. So because of this, because I claim meaning is always there. I also oppose the architecturally correct opposition between pure authentic function and so-called vulgar display of useless material, as they like to put it, a simple water pump against a gold tap, a simple object satisfying a vital need versus the excessive display of wealth. However, one should always be careful in such cases to avoid the trap signaled by John Berger in his book, Success and Failure of Picasso, where he tartly notes that Picasso's blue period, quote, because it deals pathetically with the poor, has always been the favorite among the rich, end of quote. Anyone who knows real slums, like the Latino American favelas, and I did visit them, couldn't help noticing how the improvised slum buildings, even if made of remainders of corrugated iron and wooden patchwork, are full of often ridiculously excessive kitsch decorations, up to fake, of course, gold taps. It is mostly poor people who dream about gold taps, while rich people like to imagine the simple functionality of household equipment. A simple lean water pump is how Bill Gates sees the way to help poor Africans, while the real poor Africans would probably embellish it as soon as possible with kitsch decorations. Well, it's indeed a, a saying popular among the poor who participate in carnivals in Brazil goes. Only the rich like modesty, the poor prefer luxury. Always remember this when you hear all that stuff about uh, ascetic, sustainability and so on. So I'm not even afraid of denouncing sustainability itself, the big mantra of ecologists from the developed country. I think it's an ideological myth mostly based on the idea of self-enclosed circulation where nothing is wasted. Sustainability effectively, I claim, is our version of the infamous Juche, idea of North Korea's founding leader Kim Il-sung, vaguely translatable as spirit of self-sufficiency, self-reliance. The problem is that nature is definitely not sustainable, but one big crazy process of producing waste where sometimes this waste is ex used in some locally emerging self-organizations, like humans using oil, a gigantic waste of nature as their energy source. Upon a closer look, we can always establish that sustainability refers to a limited process which enforces its balance at the expense of its larger environs. Think about the proverbial sustainable house of a rich, ecologically enlightened manager. Located somewhere in a green isolated valley, close to a forest and lake with solar energy, use of waste as manure, windows open to natural light, and so on. The costs of building such a house to the environment, not only financial costs, make it prohibitive to the large majority of people. For a sincere ecologist, the optimal habitat are big cities where millions live close to each other. Although such a city produces a lot of waste and pollution, its per capita pollution is much lower than the one of a modern family living in the countryside. How does our manager reach his office from his countryside? house? Probably with a helicopter to avoid polluting the grass around his house and so on and so on. So this brings us now really to conclude to an unexpected result. It is not only that the fantasy embodied in the mute language of buildings, can articulate the utopia of justice, freedom, and equality, betrayed, denied by actual social relations. This fantasy can also articulate a longing for inequality, for clear hierarchy distinctions. Recall the Stalinist neo-Gothic architecture, Does it not enact the return of the repressed of the official egalitarian emancipatory communist ideology? The weird desire for hierarchy and social distinction. The utopia enacted in architecture can also be a conservative utopia of regained hierarchic order. In this sense, I would love to read Hitchcock's Psycho as as a film on architecture. Namely, what if you read this pathological figure of Norman Bates, as a character split between two architectural houses, the old Gothic mother's house on the hill and the flat uh, motel beneath, uh, beneath, closer to the, uh, to the highway. So the, uh, the paradox is that, again, it split between Gothic traditions and modernity so we can well imagine that would be my ironic version how the problem of Norman Bates could have been saved if someone like Frank Gehry would have built his model incorporating mother's house into a modern building so the poor uh, Norman Bates would not have to run up and down uh, all the time so uh, again uh, to really conclude now just one page don't be afraid What I tried to do is simply to apply a little bit in a very amateurish way on architecture what I ironically like to refer as Donald Rumsfeld theory of knowledge. You remember who he was? The Minister of Defense, Secretary of Defense under the first George Bush presidency who when announcing the attack on Iraq Uh, engaged in a very interesting philosophical speculation. He says, justifying the American intervention, literally, I quote him, there are known knowns, there are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns, that is to say, there are things that we know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns, there are things we don't know that we don't know. I mean, it's very simple. Knows are things we know and we know that we know them. Like, in his case, Saddam was the president of Iraq, and we know that. Then, there are are things, there are known unknowns. Things we know that we don't know. Like, his point was weapons of mass destruction. We don't know if Saddam has them, but we know that we don't know this. And to raise the level of scare, he wanted to add, there are also unknown unknowns. There are things that we even don't know that we don't know them. Like, what if Saddam has some ultra weapons we don't have any idea of? But if you are a little bit of a philosopher, did you notice how something is missing here? A fourth term known knowns, known unknowns, we know what we don't know, unknown unknowns, total other. What is missing is unknown knowns things that we know, but we don't know that we know them. Like, to put it simply, of course, it's not uh, true knowledge. Our unconscious prejudices that determine us, but we don't know about them. And here it's, for me, the beauty of authentic architecture. Not authentic in any sense of artistic greatness. For example, again, let me return to my example of Stalinism. Of course, Stalinism, Soviet communism, pretended to be a just egalitarian society. But the paradox is that if you just look at their typical architecture, you see out there in the mute language of buildings the extreme hierarchical spirit clearly embodied. I hope you appreciate this paradox. The the paradox is how if you were just to say publicly what these buildings are saying, you would have disappeared next day and never be seen again. But you see that the paradox is that nonetheless the social system, how should I put it, felt a pressure to articulate its truth. I mean it was nothing subversive to do a building which clearly embodies hierarchical spirit. You had to do it even. It was the official style as it were. This and this was, of course, their unknown, sorry, their unknown known. They all knew it, but of course, for the public discourse, they had to pretend not to know it. So, this is why, for me, architecture has a great politico ethical responsibility, which is grounded in the fact that much more is at stake in architecture than it may appear. Remember, when you are building houses, you are also, like the unfortunate Soviet architects, you are also materializing not only public ideologies, but you go often without knowing, maybe, or maybe not yourselves, architects. You, you write there in stone even more, not just public ideology, but what the public ideology cannot say publicly the obscene secret, as it were, of the public ideology. To understand what went on in Soviet Union, it wasn't enough just to read official ideology. You read the official ideology and then you look at the house. Like you go to Lomonosov University to hear a talk and then you step out and you see the house and uh, the house tells you. Or today, again, you go to a Perform an art center, and you you just think about how it is structured, this difference between skin and the house inside. Now, I'm not saying that this is some kind of a totally enclosed situation where you can't do anything. No, there is always open space for struggle. For example, what I tried to develop is the idea which Stephen Jay Gould, to explain evolution, took from architecture the so called notion of spandrels, these empty, non functional spaces which open up when you apply different structuring principles. And the idea is that these empty spaces, which have no function, you can use them as a space of freedom, imagination, and so on. So there is always a space for struggle. But just remember, And let me, what? Remember what? Let me quote just two lines from William Butler Yeats, very known romantic poem. poem. Uh, Quote, I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. End of quote. I think these lines also refer to architecture. So my warning to architects is, when you are making your plans, Tread softly, because you tread on the dreams of the people who will live in and look at your buildings. Thank you very much.